Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's great to be here with our 200th podcast. That's 200. We've shared hundreds and hundreds of true stories with you going back to 2017. But 10 by 9 itself has been running for almost 10 years. Padre Gautuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast. And we love it. Obviously, for now, we remain on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. That may change as life starts to creep back to normal, but we'll let you know as soon as we know. Now, there are three stories in this podcast, which hopefully reflect the wonderful variety of people that are part of 10 by 9 But first, here's a little prologue from Padraig that he shared with us on our recent evening when the theme was sexy. I do actually have a particular sexy superpower myself, which I'm pleased to tell you about, which is that um, uh, nuns in their 70s have a strange attraction to me. And this was not a sexy superpower I ever imagined myself having. I had all kinds of other imaginations about what a sexy superpower of me might be, but that the one that I have been gifted with is one of um, being strangely appealing to um, nuns who have made a commitment to celibacy who were in their 70s. I, I trained in theology, and so I regularly enough still um, give lectures in theology, and I was giving a series of lectures once, and a woman came up to me and stood very, very close to me and placed one hand on my breast and the other on her own. and um, stood even closer and said, Padraig, how is it that a man of your age can make a woman of my age feel like this? And she was a nun. Of course she was. And I said to her, ah, sister, I don't think you're supposed to be talking to me like that. And she looked at me and she said, I can say whatever I want. And I went from being slightly intimidated by her to being utterly in awe of her and her freedom of her own sexuality, just thinking, bloody hell, when I grow up, I want to be a nun like her, because she has such a, an open heartedness and a sensuality of communicating whatever it was she was feeling in her body, as she was touching her body, as she was touching mine. It was quite extraordinary. And I was, I was, I was utterly in awe at how much freedom she had within herself and how I actually was the one who was being a little bit uptight about sexuality when she was completely and utterly fluid and broadcasting and at ease with herself. So she is um, now a superhero of sexuality and sexiness in my life as we think about that. So, Wow, the superpower you never thought you'd want, the non-magnet. Well, let's move swiftly on. And recently we teamed up with the Scottish arts group Highland Whispers for a wonderful evening. Helen McClements, a 10 by 9 regular, joined us with an interesting take on the theme, Senses. It was an odd sort of message for my great aunt Emma to receive. Go and get the car, it read. It's a good car. And take care of Isabel. Signed, your loving mother. It was odder still because this was the 1970s and my aunt's mother had been dead for 20 years. Aunt Emma had been sitting in the back of her post office in the Ards Peninsula, mulling over whether to trade in her old car for a new model. She had decided that she was too tired to drive to Bangor that day and so told her sister to go alone. 
But as she sat at her desk, her hand started to move across the page, forming words as if by its own accord. This was very clearly a message from beyond the grave. Aunt Emma had always been a diligent daughter and she acted fast. Change of plan, Isabel, she called, change of plan. So on that cold afternoon, she and Isabel drove to Bangor and did their messages early before going in to trade their old car for the new one at the garage at four o'clock. Isabel was none too pleased, having to rush her shopping for she loved nothing more than a good browse around the shops, especially the co-op department store near the seafront. They felt the tremors and heard the blast of the explosion an hour later when they were taking tea with my nana and granddad in their house on the Donacadie Road in Bangor. The IRA had bombed the co-op in the seafront. The very co-op where my Aunt Isabel would have been idly flicking through the rails had Emma not felt compelled to go car shopping that very afternoon. Until the day she died, Emma always believed that her mother had saved Isabel's life through the message that she had received via the medium of automatic writing. My great-grandfather liked to be of help too. Aunt Emma was greatly distressed one day as she had mislaid some important documents, dockets which had the same equivalent value of money. She had upended the post office and was stealing herself to contact her superiors and admit that these were lost. As she sat beside the phone, nervously tapping her pen, she felt another compulsion to write and a missive from her father came through, directing her to the drawer where the documents were safely stored. This could sound as though my aunt had guardian angels, but alas, some of the psychic forces in her life were not a source of comfort. Sometimes it felt as though malevolent forces were at work to torment her. She would have puzzling dreams or a sense of deja vu and would spend days trying to solve the riddle when the phone would suddenly ring with bad tidings and she would connect the dots. One such instance occurred when she woke from a terrible dream in which her mother and father, long dead, were gathered along with one of her brothers and his wife. Everybody was grief-stricken, but nobody could tell her what had happened. Aunt Emma struggled to know what to make of it, but in her gut she knew that something was very wrong. Days later, she received a phone call in the middle of the night. Her youngest brother's baby girl had died after a cold became a chest infection, which then became pneumonia. My aunt would always be racked with guilt after this. With a sickening realisation, she remembered that her brother in the dream and his wife had lost a baby too. What could she have done to alert them and potentially have saved the life of the child? This was the sort of hocus-pocus that was not desirable in God-fearing Protestants of the time. Fortune-telling was thought to be the work of the devil, and any notion of making contact with the dead was associated with the occult and not something which Christian people should ever entertain. But how then did one explain these occurrences or visitations which my aunt did not actively seek out? It was also not unusual for people to be known as having the second sight. 
One such instance was my great-grandmother coming in one afternoon to the news that an elderly farmer in the locale had just passed away. Ach, sure, she said. Didn't I just see his wraith going up the road? The line between the living and the dead was most definitely porous, or at the very least, blurred. My aunt was the seventh child of, of eight children, and rumours often abounded that they were likely to have been endowed with certain supernatural gifts or a sixth sense. What was clear, though, was that no matter how puritanical the background in the staunchly religious 1920s where my aunt was born, there was still some room for the unexplained. Thanks so much, Helen, for your sixth sense story. Always great to hear from you. You can find other amazing stories from Helen scattered throughout our podcast. And if you want to see Helen telling that story, go along to our YouTube channel. Practically all the stories from our Zoom events are there in bite-sized chunks going right back to April 2020. Okay, let's head off to Australia, to Adelaide, to be precise. Timber 9 Adelaide is going strong and back in their live venue, which is located on the land of the Garner people. The theme for this event was fashion. Here's Steph Rositis. When I was about seven, I got told that I had fine hair. And I was like, English is my second language. But I was like, fine, like good quality, like fine dining. So I was so happy. Fine hair. And back then, I used to get the home haircuts. And um, I'm not going to admit that there were any mullets involved. But all I'm going to say is I'm really happy that there was no social media back then. So you can't prove a thing. So when I was a teenager, I managed to convince my mum that even though she didn't want to spend money, and to be fair, she had seven kids, it was time for me to go to a real hairdresser. Um, she might have got hurt, but I needed to. And I got to the um, hairdressers and I found out that they have this emotional torture routine <laughs> that they used to play on me where they'd give me a magazine and they'd say, look through it and tell me what you want. All right, I'd look through this magazine and I'd find the perfect haircut and I'd be like, yes, this one. You know, long black ringlets or something. <laughs> I will be popular. I will no longer be a nerd. Make me look like this. And they'd go, oh, that's not for you. <laughs> no, and that was heartbreaking. So we'd do some negotiating and they'd go, what you need with your hair is a bob. And I was like, that's a mum haircut. <laughs> I'm not old enough for that. And it's not even like a cool mum or a capable mum or a pretty mum. But it's like a mum who spends her whole day filling lunchboxes and washing uniforms. And I thought, no, I'm not ready to give up on my hopes and dreams. <laughs> and I said, why? Why do I have to have this? And they said, well, have you heard of cowlicks? I said, yeah. Well, they said, your hair is more like a herd of cows, <laughs> has used you as an ice cream parlour for 10 years. They didn't really say that. That's just what I've learned over the years. And then, so then they'd talk me into like shoulder length, layered, framing my face, hiding my double chins. It sounded good in theory. So once again, emotional torture, getting my hopes up. I thought, yeah, I'm going to look okay. I'm going to look good. And they'd get busy with the scissors and then finished. And I'd look in the mirror and I'd go, is that it? 
this hanging limply. And I was always really, really disappointed. But I also knew that I needed to protect them from the knowledge that they'd failed. Because <laughs> I thought, I knew that haircutting was hard. Like, it looks so easy. It looks easy. But when I tried it on my sister, you know, <laughs> she's all right. She's all right. It grew back. But turns out there's actually a lot to it and it takes a lot of skill. So I didn't want them to know how terrible it was. So they go, you know, how's that? And I'd be like, yeah, fine. <laughs> so going to the hairdresser was demoralising. You know, demoralising and expensive as well because I wasn't on a high income after I left home. So I started going just for a trim and it was kind of like, you know, um, when you'd get a, you'd get your taxes back or you'd get an extra payment. Oh, I guess I'd better get my hair cut. <laughs> but I didn't like doing it. I left it as long as possible. Um, I had a feeling that they had to catch me first, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, because my hair is fine, which is not fine, <laughs> um, it gets split ends really, really easily. So actually, when they say every six weeks, that's close to how I should be doing it. And then finally, one day, I was over 40. And when you're over 40, you just don't care. <laughs> it's like, you don't get to tell me what to do anymore. Okay, you're an expert. You're an expert. You know better than me. I accept this. But if I'm going to be unhappy anyway, I'm going to be unhappy for my bad choices, not yours. <laughs> you know? So I decided for my birthday, I'd take myself to the hairdresser and I'd insist on something different. It's not going to be a bob. It's not going to be like shoulder length, sounds good in theory, but ends up looking like same old, same old. No, I'm going to do something different. So I was lucky my shift at work finished at three o'clock and I went down to Chinatown and I found a hairdresser. Uh, she looked like she wasn't too busy and I said, can you cut my hair? She's like, yeah, yeah, cool, sit down. And I sat down and the same conversation as usual started. She said, do you want just a trim? I said, no, I want it short. She said, oh, yeah, short, short, short to your shoulders? Nah, short, really short. Oh, to your chin? Nah, shorter. She's like, oh, I wouldn't recommend that. I'm like, that's okay, you don't have to recommend it. I just want you to cut it. She's like, oh. I said, look, just give me a boy cut. Just pretend I'm a boy. Cut it like a boy. It's all going to be fine. She wasn't listening to me. She was looking at her phone. She was scrolling. And I was like, this, this is what I have to work with. They don't even listen to me. Okay, to be fair, these people are style experts and I have, you know, the fashion, the fashion understanding of a fire hydrant or something. <laughs> but I thought, please, take my money, cut my hair. So I was about to get up and leave because she was still on her phone. And then she goes, ah, this one, this one. And she showed me a picture of Emma Watson, who's kind of like Hermione Granger, but real. <laughs> um, and she had this pixie cut. And on her, this pixie cut was like this golden cap of absolute wonder. And she said, do you want to look like that? And I said, yeah. I said, in fact, I'll pay you double if you make me that age. She laughed nervously. So, okay. She put the black poncho thing. That always makes me look really pale and washed out. Put that around my neck. She got her scissors. She put them up to my head. And then you could see her having second thoughts. 
And she went, oh, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Ah, uh, okay. Picked up her scissors again. And again, you could see she needed a drink. <laughs> and she goes, how are you feeling? Are you feeling nervous? I said, no, I'm feeling excited. She's excited. <laughs> oh, good. And she started cutting. And, you know, everything hairdressers do, you know, juggling knives and whatever. Um, I didn't really pay attention after that. I was just like, yeah, she's cutting it, she's cutting it. Um, so about half an hour later, she was getting the brush out, brushing off all the bits where I looked like I'd molted on myself. And she looked at me. She looked at me evaluating her work. And she goes, oh, wow, you look so cute. And she sounded surprised. But I decided instead of getting offended that she sounded surprised, you know, I looked cute and I looked in the mirror and I just couldn't say a thing. I couldn't say a thing. So she said, how, are, how, how is that? And I went, yeah, good, thanks. <laughs> I was just as embarrassed because it was just completely not what I'd ever seen in the mirror before. So I paid her. I walked out of there. I put on this fake leather jacket that I'd taken the liberty of borrowing from my son. He didn't know I'd borrowed it, but that's all right. Um, and put on my glasses, which I thought made me look like a bad person in a good way. Um, I took a selfie and I was just staring at the selfie going, wow, wow, I actually look fine. Steph, apologies if I pronounced your name wrong, which I'm sure I did, but thanks for your wonderful story. I guess hairdressers are some of the unsung heroes we missed during lockdown. So here's a big shout out to the hairdressers. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. I just want to say a special thanks to these monthly patrons, Darius Whelan, Jacqueline Gale, Samara Pitt, Matthew Mercier, David Laverty, Connie Phelps, Linda Faith Kelly, Gita Meaton, Sinead Gary, Damien Stone, Darren Chittick, Ashley Hunter, Fiona Mannion, Janet Craker, Katie Whitehead, The Killicks, Brian and Catherine McGuire, Melanie Leesner, and Beck Aiken and family. Thank you so much. And we're so grateful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. And many thanks to Mairead Kennedy, who did just that. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Okay, on to our third story now and back to our sexy evening in May. Paul Normandon teased us from his home in Texas. I was so scared I was shaking. Could I be sexy? Could I be sensual and alluring? I was sure. I was convinced. All I had to do was what I had been taught. The featured dancer had just finished her last dance and my character was the janitor at the fictional Sugar Bowl Cabaret. I grabbed my broom and took center stage. The other characters in the show came to the wings and started jeering and yelling my character at my character. Clean the theater, hurry up, I wanna go home. Sweep the stage. Then there was silence in the house. And I looked over at my broom 
and said, I could be a dancer. My words were met with cheers and hooting and hollering, you know, ruckus explosion of applause. And then I heard the music start, which meant I had to begin my routine. I was an imposter, literally. I was a new improvisational actor in Austin, Texas. I was 52 years old. I was a obese man who worked as a government project manager in real life. But when I saw the audition notice for this show, Hurley Burley, it, it was billed as an improvisational stage show about fictional women from the 20s set in a place like New York City who danced burlesque. And the show would explore their lives off the stage and show them on the stage dancing. Eight female performers would be cast as the stars of the show. And the directors wanted to cast four male performers in support roles. When I saw the casting notice, something in my brain clicked. I knew I, knew I had to audition. It was as if I was drawn to it. I, a serpent hypnotized by some magical snake charmer's forbidden allure. In spite of my very limited stage experience, I was cast. I was struck mute when the directors called to tell me. Uh, if you know me, that's not a normal thing. I was nothing like the sexy, skinny, funny, young, brilliant performers with whom I had auditioned. The first rule of burlesque is to commit to your dance. There are so many different ways to use movement on stage to tantalize the audience. You have to pick a direction and then commit to it with all your heart. I started with a hip shake. I shook one, then the other at the audience. I moved to tempt and arouse them. I heard more applause and more cheering. I prayed at this moment my old hips would hold out. I threw the broom to the floor at the side of the stage and turned my gaze on the audience. As I did, I was filled with a kind of self-doubt that just ricocheted in my brain off every failed moment of my life. Then this shrill voice in my head said, what were you thinking when you signed up for this show? Seriously, you know nothing about burlesque. You have never taken a dance class in your life and you are not funny. That last line reverberated with a kind of absolute assurance through every cell in my body. I slowly reached for the bottom button on my vest and I did my first shimmy, a, a little one that moved my chest as if to make hidden tassels swing around in circles, then a bigger shimmy. This was important because after the shakes and the shimmies, you got to keep dancing because the music's still playing. And you have to make movements to entice and engage your audience as you slowly reveal your skin, teasing them by peeling off layer after layer. First my shoes, then my socks, but slowly and one at a time while I gyrated and shimmied. 
more shakes with bigger shimmies followed. You have to slow everything down while you continue to sway and move. The second rule of burlesque is to command the audience with your presence. You look at them and you show them who you are as if to say they paid to see you and only you on stage that night. And no matter what, be brave. Of course, in my brain, a voice was screaming, they did not come to see you. They came to see one of the young, sexy, funny women in the cast. You were never supposed to do this. In rehearsals, when the director saw how captivated I was by the thought of learning burlesque, they said I could train with the other performers. The cast and the professional trainers were all encouraging helpful and so very supportive. I finished the last button on the vest and it came off. I, I threw it into the audience. I continued to dance with twirls and twists, shaking my hips all the while. I gave the audience my complete focus. You see the focus tool says the audience wants you and you know they do. You engage them and tease them as you flirt with your eyes, your face, your, your whole body. You make it personal. You make a promise to be scantily clothed at the end of the dance. And once started, there is no stopping until you fulfill that promise. With all the other dancers, the audience had showed love and support. For the women, the audience provided a kind of lust and passion and sexual desire through their unadulterated adulation. But I heard laughter. I saw the laughter on their face. They were cheering and encouraging, but they weren't titillated. They were amused. I, I was the clown. The simplest, biggest, and best tool in burlesque is to pick one person in the audience to dance for them if you panic. I was lost in that laughter. My, my head was filled with a dull buzz. I was passing panic and quickly heading for terror. The stage lights limited me seeing anyone past the first row. I scanned for someone there who wouldn't be too upset if I danced for them. And as my eyes came across some friends who were newly married, I knew that was not going to work. I saw other friends in the front row, but I didn't know any of them well enough to centrally flirt with them in a public setting. Then I saw my friend, Aaron. He was sitting with his wife. I didn't know her well, but I knew he was wise and kind and the complete opposite of uptight. All I had to do was be sexy for Aaron. I locked eyes with him. He smiled and gave me the slightest of nods. Everyone now was laughing except Aaron. He, he's a brilliant improviser and immediately played the role I had cast him in. Next, my slacks came off as I maintained my focus on Aaron. My long dress shirt covered my hips and groin. I started unbuttoning the shirt at the top, working my way down, still dancing. The audience was in a state of pure chaos as I paused to pick up my broom. 
and I danced back to the middle of the stage with my shirt almost off, giving a little slide off and on. And I undid the last button, swinging it over my head and throwing the shirt toward Aaron. I was wearing nothing but a maroon G-string holding the broom as I struck and held the same pose I had opened with as the lights snapped off and the audience exploded again in applause. One night many years ago, I set out to be a sexy burlesque dancer. And for my friend, Aaron, that night, I was. For everyone else at the show, I was a funny actor playing a burlesque dancer. I remain very proud that I did both at the same time. And nothing I have done on stage since has been as frightening or rewarding in the same way. Oh, wow, Paul, what a story, channeling your inner share. Well done, and thanks, Jin. You can see Paul and some of his moves on our YouTube channel. It's hot. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, always, always looking for storytellers. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to tell everyone about it and maybe even give us a rating or review wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 That would be really, really, really helpful. This podcast is a Paul Dorn production, and if you've ever wondered who makes our amazing and hilarious posters, that's the brilliant non-magnet, Podrigutuma. Thanks to you for listening, but thanks most of all to Helen McClements, Steph Rositis, and Paul Normandon. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.